All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. We are on page 42. Again, it seems like we've been on page 42 for a little while. All right, page 42. Um, we've been talking about the concept that there is nothing else besides for God in, in everything, in everywhere, in the universe, in the cosmos, on earth, etc. This is an idea that actually is at the heart of what this discourse is all about. Because the discourse is all about faith, feminine faith. And we're going to eventually tie it back to the feminine aspect, but the concept of faith, what is faith? What is Jewish faith? Jewish faith is that God is one, Hashem Echad, the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad, God is one. What that means is there's nothing else. So we've mentioned this many times before. The big debate between the philosophers, and the, the sages, the rabbis, the Kabbalists. And the big debate is about God. Because even the philosophers, most of them, the ancient philosophers, talked about some sort of God. They, didn't, they maybe didn't use the word God, but they talked about an original prime mover, first cause, something that stood at the beginning of everything, that put everything else into motion. But typically... Where philosophy went from there is that the philosopher said that once God puts things into motion, God doesn't get involved anymore. God is a very hands-off CEO. Why? Again, we, this is an idea that we've said before, but it just, we just need to, 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 to revisit again in this intro. Why, why did they choose to say that God does not get involved in the nitty-gritty? It's because of the difficulty in reconciling a perfect whole one God with all of the fragmentation and ugliness of this world. Which is why, as we've, uh, we once discussed in this class, why Plato has his concept of perfection, Plato's forms, his idea of beauty and perfection, is a concept of perfection that transcends the actual particular thing that you're looking at. For example, the tree. Right, you look outside and you see a tree. So the tree that you see is only one physical representation of the concept of form called tree. There's a perfect form called tree. When you see a tree and you say, that's a tree, so you see two trees. That's a tree and that's a tree. How can they both be trees? They're different. You call them both a tree. But they're different. That one looks like that, that one looks like that. They, they look different. And you call both of them a tree. Why? He said because they, they approximately look like a tree. But what is a tree? If every tree is different, so what is the tree that you're measuring everything against? So he says, oh, there's a perfect tree. There's a perfect tree against which all is measured. And that perfect tree doesn't exist necessarily in a physical form. That's like the perfect concept of a tree. And everything else is a physical representation of that tree. Everything else is a flawed representation of that tree. This is a snapshot of what the philosophers did with God as well. Which is taking God and making God a perfect concept that cannot get distilled down or cannot get watered down or cannot find himself, in a sense, within the nitty-gritty, within all of the uh, diversity and ugliness and, and, and confusion of this world. That is the approach of the, of the philosophers. That God is the original However, God has not been involved in, uh, in the last little while. God doesn't get involved. 
Okay, and then you have the Kabbalists. What does Judaism say? What does Kabbalah say? God is one. What does it mean that God is one? What it means is that even notwithstanding all of the fragmentation that we see, notwithstanding the fact that there's plurality and diversity and fragmentation within the world, there's different trees and different grass and different people, and there's different things happening and moving and chaos, it seems. Most of the world, most of our lives perhaps, seem chaotic. There's chaos everywhere. Random things happening. Why is it that? All of that is God. How can you have God within the chaos? So this is one of God's tricks. It's called Simpson. The fact that God, the ability that God has to conceal His oneness and to create the appearance of diversity, even though it's one. Now, if David Copperfield can make the Statue of Liberty disappear, right? So certainly God can figure out a way how to make Himself disappear. That's what happens. God, right, not that God uses smoke and mirrors, but maybe He does. God uses His ability to conceal Himself, to hide His oneness, to hide the oneness that runs through everything, in order to create the illusion that there's a separation from God and fragmentation, a separation from everything else. So that things don't look like they're all working together and working toward a common purpose. Everything looks like, at least at first glance, that things are separate. Right? I'm living my life, you're living your life, you do many different things. I do many different things, even in one day. The things that we do are not connected necessarily. There's fragmentation, there's diversity. All of that, again, all of that from a Jewish perspective is not real. All of that is the appearance. But what's real is oneness. At the heart of all diversity is oneness. Which is why, by the way, we explained Wednesday night, we had a great class Wednesday night, Torah Studies class. We explained why beauty is beautiful. We explained why it is that certain things look beautiful. Why do certain things look beautiful? So there's studies with faces. What's a beautiful face? Symmetry. symmetry. Beauty is symmetry. Or symmetry is beautiful. Right? A beautiful face, a symmetrical face, is, it's beautiful. Why is it beautiful? Why is symmetry beautiful? Because when you have symmetry... The diversity, you're seeing through the diversity. In other words, when you have symmetry on a physical level, you're seeing that different features, different things, are, different colors, different notes are all working together. So within the diversity, you see the oneness. What that, in that moment, in that experience, the, the, the veil of concealment of the oneness of, of all, of God, is being lifted, because in that moment you're sensing the oneness that binds these diverse particles together, or aspects together, and at that moment you feel uplifted. And you feel, wow, this is beautiful. This is, this is something special. Right? You're at a symphony, and suddenly the music is playing, and there's so many different notes, and it's all working together. From the diversity, to find oneness, is nothing short of discovering God in that moment. Not that God is necessarily the symphony, but God isn't not the symphony. Does that make sense? We can't say that God is a symphony. But can't have a symphony without God. And the fact that it works together, that's revealing God in this moment. Revealing, how could it be that diversity works together in the first place? Because there's no diversity. It's not real. When we see harmony within diversity, there's almost like a, the facade is, God creates this layer of facade. It says, yeah, you exist, I don't exist, wink, wink, Right? I don't exist, it's all separate, separate from me, separate from each other, diversity, done, I'm out. 
That's the, that's the facade. Then there are cracks in that. Cracks in that when we notice, ah, I see a pattern here. I see oneness here. You can't fool me. We feel uplifted in that moment. That's what beauty is. That's what the pleasure of beauty is. Yeah. So what is the, the purpose of the concealment? To make us look for Him. The Bashem said that God plays hide and seek. Sim- most, the si- most simple game. Hide and seek. God hides, we seek. What's the purpose? Number one, to see if we're going to look for Him. That's test number one. Right? If you don't have to, if you don't see Him, are you going to look for Him? That's number one. Number two is, even after you look, you start looking for Him, are you going to persist in that? Looking for Him. It's, and, and, and so what's the, is it a game? It would be, but then it wouldn't be as difficult. And if it's the, the in other words, the as as we balance, you know, it's a, it's a, it goes either this way or this way. Either it's easier and then it, therefore it's less meaningful, or it's harder and it's more meaningful. When I say meaningful, what we accomplish. The easier it is, the less meaningful our contribution is in this process. So you gain from looking, you gain from persistence. Absolutely, and and here's the here's the trick: we may never get there in this life. Some, part, of the, part of the idea of, of the afterlife is, and again, this is notwithstanding reincarnation, etc., and then different jobs that different aspects of, of different lifetimes have, but forget about that for a second. The general idea of heaven, of afterlife, of Gan Eden, paradise, is that at that point, the person feels the connection, the oneness with God. It's not necessarily going to happen here. And that's okay. And by the way, the purpose is not only to get to heaven. That's also not a Jewish idea. That, that we live life to get to heaven. Even though you will find that, by the way, taught in some Jewish circles as well. Like they put a very big prominence on, on doing a mitzvah to get, uh, to get a reward. At, the way Kabbalah understands it, as explained in Hasidic philosophy, is that the greatest reward of a mitzvah is, a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. The greatest reward of goodness is goodness itself, is that connection. So it's almost like this. When we do the right thing, we're plugged in, we have the connection. We might, not ex- we not might not feel or sense the connection, but at that moment we are absolutely connected on the deepest of levels. So what's the point of the connection if we can't feel it? It's a connection. It says in Tanya, if you're hugging the king, does it make a difference if he's wearing two garments or ten garments? Or no garments? Because you're hugging the king, it doesn't matter how many layers of separation, you're hugging the king. So in this world, every time we do a mitzvah, we're hugging the king. The fact, when we do a mitzvah, when we do a mitzvah, the fact that the mitzvah takes on a physical form, and therefore it's like God in clothing garments so that we can relate to him, fine, it doesn't, still hugging the king, you're still having that embrace. In the afterlife, we can experience, in a sense, we can experience the pleasure of what we've done, but we can't actually accomplish, and we can't actually connect in that way in heaven. So, the point of all of this is, that there is a concealment. And the concealment is such that we feel that God is not present. That things are running on autopilot. That there is no um, connection between the diverse elements of this world. And again, Judaism and Kabbalah, the, 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 again and again, the emphasis is on Hashem Echad, God is one. There's only God, nothing else exists outside of God. And that oneness runs through everything. Which gets us back to the last point that we made in the la- two weeks ago. Last time I taught this. Which is that time 
is also not static. Or, or so, uh, uh, let, me, let me back up for one second. Creation itself is not static. And therefore, time is not what it looks like. What does that mean? According to the philosophers, the way we're philosophers versus sages or Kabbalists, so the philosophers say that God created once, one and done. Created, everything's working, God takes a step back, and everything's moving, everything's kind of operating the way it operates. In that model, there's no perpetual force that needs to enliven the world consistently. Once God pushes, right? Once it's almost like you know gravity and and, and uh, you know big cartoon ball that's about to smash the uh, Roadrunner or whoever it is, right? So like once, who's the other guy? The, the Tasmanian Devil? Wiley. Who? Wiley, oh, Wiley Coyote. Wiley Coyote. Tasmanian Devil is a different guy. Oh, right, this thing. Right. Okay, but maybe related. Maybe exactly. It's a completely different space. Well, and they're also ultimately connected, right? Hashem Okay, so now, so it's almost like the conception, if you picture it, you know, that God's, the earth, let's say, the earth, round ball, God pushes it, oh, and it's moving, it's running. Kabbalah says, not true. Tanya, Shari one of the most intense sections of study you'll ever read. You'll ever, you'll ever study. I mean, such deep, it's only 12 chapters, but boy, is it complicated. It's, ten, it's dense. It's like, wow, it's tightly packed. It says over there that the philosophers made a... He says the philosophers, says in, in Hebrew, philosophers, made a big mistake. They said that the creation of heaven and earth is the same as the creation of human beings. When a person creates something, you create it and you're done. Right? You create art, you step away from the canvas, it exists. You create a mug, you're finished. It exists. <laughs> That's it. I don't have to do anything else. So philosophers said the same thing is true with God. God created the world and the world exists. It's like a mug. God created a mug. God created the world. And what does God have to do? It's, it's done. It's finished. It has its life now. So he says in Tanya that this is a big mistake because there's a difference between creation, creating something from something that already existed as opposed to creating something from nothing. When you're creating something from something, in other words, you're just refashioning what already exists. So I'm taking clay, and I'm modeling it one way or another way, or I'm taking paint, colors, and I'm putting it here or there. So something already exists. I'm just repositioning it, or re- reforming it, or recrafting it. Alright, so it still exists. But if I'm creating something from nothing, in other words, if you ta- before this something was there, you're putting something into being from nothingness, that's a harder feat. That requires a constant energy. Why? Because things tend to revert back to their state. So when you're already dealing with something that exists, right? I take a piece of paper that looks like this, and I fashion it into my tremendous, award-winning paper airplane. Which we kids love. Right? One of those, the double fold, you know, you go like this, you fold it, you fold it again, boom, it's like a smaller one, huh? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to do it to this. But I'm just saying. I, yeah, absolutely. After class, we could have a demonstration. Shiva 101. This is like an Nittelnacht. You know what Nittelnacht is? You know what Nittel is? Anybody know what Nittel is? Nittel was last night. You can't learn Torah last night. You know that? From 525 till after midnight, you can't learn Torah. Because of the 25th. Oh, 
Christmas. Because you can't unwrap your wisdom until the, more, the sun comes up. No. Ah, until under the tree. No, no. It's called Nittelnacht. It's, there's a custom in many Jewish circles, and Chabad uh, subscribes to this custom, that we don't learn on the eve of the 25th. Don't learn Torah. The idea is not to add energy, spiritual energy, to, to directions where... The idea is that by learning, there's a certain energy that's added to the world, and an individual that uh, historically, or because of an individual and a movement that caused so much pain and destruction and death to the Jews, so the idea is not to add chayas, not to add uh, vitality. What are you going to do? So you take... It was last night. That's it, 525, no learning. It's an hour before Shabbat ends. So you st- we stop, that's it. No learning. So typically... Giving more attention. That's a good. It's a really good. It's a very good question. It's like in doing it, you're like, what are you giving it more credence than it? Good. It's a very good question. There's a fierce debate amongst us. Again, it's a custom. It's not like biblical law, obviously. Of course, yeah. I mean, this is this is a. I mean, it's a. It's a few hundred years old, but it's a custom. Again, some communities have it, some communities don't. Look, there's a lot of discussion on it. Why you go by the English calendar anyway? The English date. Why is it? Some people say in, in Russia they don't even. The twenty fifth of December is not even the day of his birth. It's a different day. They have they have a different. There's a lot of discussion about it. A lot of questions about it. Good. There's class, Chabad Org has a great class from Rabbi Bogomilsky on it. It's a forty five minute class. You can listen to it. and You get all your questions answered. Anyway, I don't want to get into too much into the details. But not on the twenty fourth. Right. Today you can write those do then because although maybe if it's in Yoni Dayim if it's relevant to, to the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Go for it. it. It depends on how you define, define something and nothing. Also. Good. Because how can, you know, it's like, if you, de- you could define potential as something, and it, it seems like... Oh, saying, great question. You know, the thing is like this, before creation, there was not even a potential for creation. The, cr- the potential for creation had to be itself created. This is what Kabbalah, trust me, Kabbalah gets into before creation, level, dimension after dimension after dimension after dimension, before God's, before it arose within God's will to create, and before, if you could say such words, I mean, we're kind of dumbing it down in a sense, just to speak in anthropomorphic terms, but in a sense, before God got the, hey, let me create, before that happened, there's theoretically a potential, because there's, but there's, there's a difference between koyach, which means potential, and yechoyles, which means the, the possibility for. One is kinetic in a sense. Kinetic means what? Okay, so no. What's the other one? What's the potential before kinetic? Huh? No, there's no word for it. Potential. Oh, is it potential? And kinetic? Well, there you go. So there's, right, so, but there's potential that's latent potential. In other words, that's ready to go. And then there's a potential that's not ready to go, but if it were to arise, it would be ready to go. And then it would have to go. Does that make any sense? It definitely makes sense. In other words, like this. There's when something is... There's when something is... Let me give you an example. I don't have a good example. We're going to go... We're going to go with God. (laughs) Somewhere, potentially, Hashem had the intention or the thought or even, you know, it's kind Mm. of like homeopathy versus allopathy. It's like, you know... I don't know what that is. 
if you dilute a substance enough, you still have the resonant energy. Right, okay, good. It's a homeopathic approach. Okay. The more you dilute it, the more powerful it gets. The small, the more concealment, the more powerful. More, can you concentrate it? Yeah, more concentrated. Okay, good. So the idea being, if Hashem, at, I mean, before something was created, there was God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it wasn't that something was created from nothing. Something was created from God. Right, but God, re- relative to what's created, is nothing. You're asking a good question. The question, the Kabbalist asked the question. Why do we say that creation is yesh something from nothing? You're calling God nothing. So there's two answers. Number one, yeah, to us, we can't relate to God. So we, call, we it's the unknown, so we call the unknown nothing, nothing that we can relate to. It doesn't mean nothing, nothing. It means nothing we can relate to. On a deeper level, though, we do come from nothingness. And again, this is, this is the point that I want to get to. I want to just explain again. I started the explanation, but I want to, want to see if we can explain this uh, in a way that makes sense. There's the way something becomes expressed. Let's say, let's, let's use a physical example. Let's say kindness, chesed. So somebody is doing an act of kindness, right? You're actively giving someone food who's hungry. Someone who's hungry and you're giving them food, you're actually expressing kindness in that moment. That's one stage. That's the way kindness is being manifest. Let's take a step back. Right? We're working from the most expressed to the most uh, not expressed. The next step before that is before you encounter this individual. So you have a feeling of kindness, Right? You want to do something kind. You want to give. But there's no one to give to. Okay. So that's... You're not actually expressing kindness. But there's a potential for kindness. Right? You have the potential to express kindness. And you might even want to express the kindness. Let's take it a step further. Let's say you're not thinking about kindness. It's not on your mind. You know, you're, you're doing something else. It's not, it's not, you're not feeling like, oh, I want to be kind. I wish there was someone to be... To, to feed or someone to, to help out. You're just thinking about something else. But do you have that potential that if somebody comes your way, you'll help them out? Absolutely, of course. Let's take it a step further back. And this is where it kind of falls apart, because it only works with God. Let's say the whole concept of kindness doesn't even exist. <laughs> there's, no, there's no concept of kindness. Can there be created a concept of kindness? So, again, it's not going to work with a human being. And, and maybe there is an example where it's going to work, but, but not, not that I can figure out right now. When it comes to God, it, it, the way it works is like this. There's the way God creates. There's the way God, before creation, were God's plan in creation. Then there's the idea where God initially comes up with the idea to create. So it's not even like planning and actually creating. It's just the, the general notion of creation. And then there's before that, where there's no desi- there's no, not even an intention to create. And there's no concept in a sense. There's not even a potential for creation on one level. In other words, the potential for creation, it's not like there's something in place which will inevitably lead to creation if the right things happen. This is, we're talking about now a dimension where, you know what a good example is? The difference, this is an idea I've mentioned before, but I think this is is actually going to work. The difference between the potential fire in a coal, in a hot coal, or in a flintstone. We've talked about this before. In a hot coal, right, so you don't see the fire, but if you take a piece of paper or something kindling and you hold it there, it'll catch. Because it's hot inside. So it's not, it's not, it's not a red hot coal. Let's say it's a white hot It's a hot coal. On the outside, you, you don't see that it's hot. Unless you know what it looks like. But on the... Huh? Yeah. Right. So you don't see on the outside that it's hot. 
but inside it's not, and as soon as you put it there, so there's no fire externally, but there's an inside fire, and that fire is, lends itself very easily to revelation. Then you have a flintstone, where there's a potential fire, or it could cause fire if you strike it, you know, if you strike it with a stone in the right way, you could produce a spark, which could produce a fire, but it's something that's not, it's a potential that's there, but it's not immediately there. It's something that requires force to extract it. It's not like, it doesn't, it won't lead, if you put a, uh, a if you put paper or kindling next to a flintstone, it's not like, you know, you know one thing leads to another, boom, it's going to end up a fire. It's not going to happen. It's not, it's not so immediate. It's not so there. So the same thing is true with God. There is the ability, the power, the potential to create it, of course, is there. You can't say that God doesn't have the potential. That's what I mean. But it's called Yechoyles. It's called something else. It's not called Koyach. Koyach means potential power. So there's the actual Poel. There's the actual expression of it. Then there's the potential power to express. But then there's Yechoyles, which means, in English, maybe it would be called the ability. It's, it's the potential of the potential. You see what I mean? Does that make any sense? It's the, something you can't really put into words or conceptualize. It's, it's hard to... But it's, it's basically, of course God could create... Because to say that he couldn't create is to create a limitation within God. So, of course, God could create. But at that point, is creation something that's, that you can't even call it a potential? Because potential implies that it's a potential that's going to lead itself to a, to a realization. This is before that. Which is why, again, all of this, my point of all of this is, that's why it's called ayin. That's why it's called nothingness. Because the, you look at a tree... God creates the tree, or God creates the, the, the first tree, which is, enlivens the tree constantly, etc., which we're going to get to in a second. But that tree doesn't come from, immediately it comes from a source to, of a tree. But, but ultimately, it comes from a place that's beyond tree. Has no relationship to tree. Now, can that source within God, can it eventually create a tree? Of course. Because to say that God, God, God's essence can't create a tree is to limit God. But is tree there in a potential state? It's not there. It's something that's completely... It's a step beyond that. You know, it, it, yeah. Treeness. Treeness, right. Maybe I'm mixing uh, references, but you said in the past that like when it says in the beginning, Elohim created, that there's something before the beginning. Is that... Exactly. It's all, it's all related, exactly. Before the beginning... In other words, once there was a beginning, then God can create. It's almost like there has to be, there has to be a beginning, and that's called the Gulf Glifa Atiri Forgetting the, the the terms from from Kabbalah, the Aramaic, but there's a certain point in time when time begins, when the notion of oh, let's create, the potential for creation begins. Before then, there's not even what we would call a potential. Ultimately, of course, there is, there has to be a potential, but it's not something that we would term a potential. Whenever we call, let's put it this way. Let's put it. Let's let's put it very simply, in a sense. That's not so simple. Anytime, any reference that we have to potential means that it's a potential that's in the that's relative to the actual. Whenever we use the word potential, it means that there's a, a there's a strong relationship between that and and and, the, and that which will develop into actuality. When we speak about God's potential at, in His essence to create before, he, before the desire, the thought, or the idea, the notion arose, 
can't even call that potential. Again, in the Hebrew, there's two different words. There's koach, which can mean strength and power, or can mean potential. Then there's something called yecholet. Yecholet means something else. Yecholet means the default possibility of everything because God is God. But there's not, you can't call it potential in our words yet. Yeah. Is that created in the past tense? Bara created. Oh, bara. Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it is. Okay. The way is vowelized, yeah. So there still is a notion that there was a moment. There was a beginning, yeah. Now, again, according to Ramban, wait, hold on. According to the way we've explained it before, citing the Ramban, famous biblical commentary of 800 years ago, Ramban writes, Nachmanides, Ramban writes that. In the beginning, God created the bara, the bria, the form, the unformed form of creation. And then there was Yitzira, and then there was Asiya. He goes, he explains how the verse, he explains the Kabbalistically, he had Kabbalah, he threw, throws Kabbalah in his commentary. He explains, he explains, and I think we've had the quote even from him in, in previous classes, where God created first the potential, the unformed matter, then formed the matter, and then baked it, or whatever, whatever you want to call it, and then concretized it, and then the world is how we know it. So in the beginning, there's the potential, God creates the potential for the creation as we know it. But does that mean that you read that word created at four different levels for each of the worlds? No. Which of the worlds is it referring to? No, he says that, no, he doesn't, he doesn't speak in terms of worlds, he speaks in terms of stages of existence, which, again, we could say are worlds. And I want to talk about worlds that, like, Worlds is in right here, four dimensions of, of the progression of reality. He says that bara in, that, in, the, in the verse is only referring to the first step. And then as you read the subsequent verses, we see how God forms, how, how the creation evolves from that first step. That's but the point... The key, not the right? Correct. Yeah, because it's all about con, con, you know, condensing and, and contracting and, 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 and creating fragmentation, even the beginnings of it. But Havai is before the story starts, right. Hashem is before the story of Elohim starts. Now, but here's the point also of this that the beginning of this creation does happen at one point in time. In other words, there is a beginning point in which everything else is put into motion. At the same time, and this is what we're getting to right here in the text, at the very same time, and this is the last point that we mentioned two weeks ago, everything is constantly being recreated from anew. There is a point in time, that your question is it past or present, is a valid question. It is past. Which could seem like God created once. But again, when you're creating something from nothing, and true nothingness means that there's not even a potential, again, in the strict sense, in our sense of potential, for it to exist, that, and it's, the, the natural state of existence is non-existence. You want to li- make that existence exist, or non-existence exist, you need a constant force plugging it in. It's almost like any appliance that you have. Have a refrigerator, Right? You unplug the refrigerator, boom! It's gone. Not that it disappears and it melts into oblivion. And poof, it just disappears into the ether. I'm not saying that. Ether, ether. Nothing. Ether, ether. It appears into nothing. Whatever. Ether. It's all good. Ethel. Alright. Not that it disappears, but it stops working. Kabbalah explains, and again, I, I started saying, in Tanya Shar chapter, which literally means the, the, the gate, the portal of. Yichud v'amunah, of oneness, God's oneness, and amunah and faith, which is really all that we're talking about here. He says like this, 
that the philosophers made a mistake because they're talking about something from something. Something from something can exist, the second something can exist independent of the first something because it's really the first something remodeled. So the first something already existed, so you're refashioning it to a second something. Take a piece of wood, right? You cut it into a chair. The chair exists. You don't need to constantly recreate it. Why? Because you started from something that was already there. So if you start from something that's already there and you refashion it, it's still there. You don't have to be involved. But when you're dealing with the actual creation of something from nothing and what that means something from nothing is, something that's emerging from a place where it didn't exist at all, where it's not even it didn't exist because it didn't actually come into existence yet, but it was there potentially. It's not even there potentially. In other words, the way it truly exists in relation to, to God's essence, where that thing doesn't exist, doesn't take up space. The potential, potential for it exists, but not the actual potential for it, not even, right? So when you're dealing with that type of relationship between the thing and its source and where it comes from, which is nothing at all of what it looks like or nothing then you constantly have to recreate it. Because otherwise it reverts back to its state, which is nothingness. And it doesn't exist. And he says in Tanya, that were God to cease constantly pumping energy into creating it, in other words, if the divine force that enlivens everything, or that particular thing, would cease to enliven for a moment, that thing would cease to exist. Not only would it cease to exist, the entire history of that thing would cease to exist. It would be as if it never was. The entire time of that thing would be erased. It's kind of science fiction. It's kind of, kind of like sci-fi, right? X-Files. X-Files. Not only would it disappear from now on, the whole story would be erased. Why? Because with God, time is not linear. With us, time is linear. To God, to reality, time is not linear. Time just is. Time is a creation. You remove something and its space, you remove its time also, it takes away its totality of time. There's nothing left of it. So the point is like this. Here's the point, without getting too, uh, too, too, too esoteric. The point is, we're still going to get esoteric, but not, not too esoteric. The emphasis is on, is on the two. Right? The point is, the point of all of this is, that everything is constantly, life, existence, is constantly being enlivened. There's a constant flow. If you want to think about it as a divine plug, there's a constant flow of energy. There's a constant force that's enlivening the world as we know it. Which is why, if we're conscious of this, our life is, our life is completely different. The moment we're conscious of this idea... We know that every moment is precious. We know that no moment is static. We know that just because it was like, this is what I said at the end of last, two weeks ago. We know that, every, that even though something was a certain way a moment ago, it doesn't have to be like that moving forward. <coughs> nothing is, nothing is uh, static. If God creates the world once, and everything is in motion from there, it becomes a very depressing place. A very depressing place, because things are how they are. <laughs> things are stuck. Things are only you know, moving further away from God. But if God is constantly, in, constantly plugging in, constantly enlivening you and me and everything around us, <coughs> there's, it's a different picture. You always have that connection with God. You can always recreate yourself. Because you're, you don't have to recreate yourself. God is recreating you in this moment. I want to I, I change my life. 
How am I going to change my life? I've been living a certain way up until now. How am I going to change my life? Because the you that's right now is a different you than was you a moment ago. You're not the same person. You might think you're the same person. Again, the facade, the smoke and mirrors. The smoke and mirrors is that God is disconnected and everything else runs the way it runs. But that's all the facade. The reality is that nothing exists and God is constantly creating everything every, every moment from anew. So the fact that you're here, you've been just flashed into existence. You're flashed into existence. You, you can change your life at this moment. Which is the power of teshuva. This is the Jewish notion of teshuva. What is the notion of teshuva as expressed in the famous story of Rabbi Elazar ben Durdoi? He was the guy that, uh, you know this story. I've said it before. We, I once had a print out of it. He was the guy that it said there was no woman of ill repute that he didn't know. Remember the story? Yeah, okay. So there was a guy, he was a fellow who lived in the times of... Huh? <laughs> lived in the times of the town, but there was no woman of ill repute that he, uh, he found out about a woman that lived in far off land. He's like, I gotta go. I gotta, he had, like, people cut bottle caps, people cut... This was his, this was his hobby. Right. I, right, so he goes, he travels, he travels a far distance... He's with her. The Talmud says that it was they had a nice conversation. They had a nice conversation. And during the conversation, right? During the conversation, she tells him. What does she tell him? Hold on, hold on. Huh? Wait, 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 wait! I don't want to mess this up. She tells him something along the lines of "You're, you're, you're too far gone." Like. I, I don't know wh- how it came up in conversation during the conversation, right? But it came up during the conversation, and and her, her, her the 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 gist of what she was saying is, you're not uh, you're you're beyond repair. You're you're not functioning anymore. No, you're not not not, not functioning. But you're you're this is who you are. I mean, you're you can never get to. But you're you know, no. You're, you're, you're an immoral fellow, and I'm not that, not that she's, but you're, that's, this is who you are. You're not, you're not getting, there's no hope for you. Thank you. That's, that's, that's it. That's it. That's it. Once, once you, that's it. So he, so suddenly, that really strikes him. That the finality of it, like that, that thing, for some reason, that, that kind of struck a chord. And it says, what did it say? It said he asked, um, I don't remember, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, anyway, the, the point of it is that somehow he heard, or maybe she said that the rumor is that everyone can do tshuva except for, him, except for you. You can't, you're beyond repair. Like, you're beyond hope, you're hopeless. You, you're hopeless. At that moment, that really broke him. And he cried, and he did tshuva. And he felt like, you know, I don't, this is not who I want to be. This is, I don't want to be that guy that's beyond repair. That's, that's, that's you know, he, he says he did a such, he had a such, he had a, such an intense moment of teshuva that he actually passed away. Actually died. And the sages said that he went straight to heaven. All of his, all of the things, all of his misdeeds were transformed into, into, uh, into virtues. At that moment. Why? Because, as we've talked about many times, because all of that pushed him to this intense yearning and longing for God, he couldn't have reached without, the, without the, having gone the other way. What's the point? The point is, some of the Talmudic sages said, I envy this guy. 
some people acquire the world to come over a lifetime. And he, he acquired it in one moment. The point of it is that you can, a person can change their life in one moment. Does Sometimes you think, how can I change my life? It's, it's going to, you know, this is who I am. This is who I've defined myself. This is how I've been living. This is how others define me. You've got to realize, it's almost like seeing that what you see is not real. In other words, the static, the status quo, all of the, all of the, the borders, not the borders, all the limitations that we see in front of us. Like, I can't change because of this person in my life and that person and this job and that issue and this family. All of the things that get in our way and say, I can't because of this circumstance and that circumstance. We have to realize that the truest point is none of them exist. Nothing is true. It's all not true. What's true is that you're recreated and everything else is recreated in this moment and you have a choice what to do in this moment. Nothing else that happened before is real. Nothing else is real. The idea, I just want to round out this point and then, and then we'll, we'll go with the question. The, the idea that time itself, past my history or even my present as of a second ago, the fact that the, the notion that that's real is idolatry. Because what it's saying is that God is not recreating this moment, or God is not creating this moment. Again, this, the, the, the most profound understanding of Hashem Achar, God is one, means that God is one. God is not removed from the, from the world. God is not only here, but God is constantly here. Because to say that God was once here at the beginning of creation, right? As David said, Bereshit bara, in the beginning, in the beginning God created, but now God is not... The, that's again idolatry. It's saying that God is not right here. I think God was here... 57, 72 years ago, but where's God lately? God's not here. That's again saying, so, so who's here? We're here. And we're running the show. Again, idolatry. So we're running the show. Where's God? The truest sense of Hashem Echad and avoiding idolatry, which is what, we're, what this is all about, is that God is here. God is not only in heaven, God is here. God is constantly here in this moment. To say otherwise, to feel otherwise, is again a subtle form of idolatry. To feel like God is not in this moment. God is not renewing this moment. But this moment is stuck in the same modality as the previous moment. Is basically saying God doesn't exist in this moment. It's cutting God out of this moment. If I cut out God from any space, whether it's a space, physical space, or whether it's a space within time, it's a form of idolatry. God is also in the past. Oh, okay. I'm not. You said the notion of there being a past is idolatry. No, the notion of God only being in the past—that God once upon the time, once upon a time created the world. That God once upon a time gave me life. Right? Birth is a gift from God. God gives us a soul, but then after that, it's us, or it's others, or it's circumstances, or it's life itself, or it's nature, or it's right. It's the Wall Street. It's the one percent. Whatever. Any of those notions. Pull it away from God and put it here. Put all of this. Put all of the energy here. Subtle form of idolatry. The person is not denying God. I believe in God. God gave me life once upon a time, but now I have to. Right? I have to. You have to. We have to. All of that is still too much me and too little God. It's still cutting God out of the any space. Here's the here's the here's the baseline. Here's the general notion. Here's the rule of thumb. That's what I was looking for. Rule of thumb. Any space that I cut out God from is a space of idolatry. 
If I say that God is not recreating this moment, this space, this circumstance, this, this scenario, if I say that, if I believe that, if I feel that, that's in a subtle form in this moment, idolatry. Which is why we say that if I get angry at a certain moment, it's idolatry. Because in that moment of anger, I get angry at somebody. Somebody harm me, right? Somebody hits the back of your car, right? And you, and you respond with anger. What that means is you're saying, God's not here. It's that person that hit me. I'm not saying you got angry. I'm saying if you were, you didn't get angry. On the contrary, I'm saying if if a person reacts and instead, and the natural reaction is anger, perhaps. But if a person reacts with anger, somebody rear-ends you. So you get angry. What are we doing? You got angry at the person. You're saying what you're saying is that that person did something. That person hit you. You're saying, and what you're saying implicitly, therefore, is that God wasn't in that moment. It was that person that did it in totality. So at that moment, huh? But he did do it. <laughs> he did it, but... Okay, so here's where the it's thing... Better. And... You turn the other bumper. There you go. Yeah. Okay, so I have two questions. Yeah. Um, the first question is, the attachment to understanding and feeling the presence of God also seems like idolatry. Because you said again, the attachment... The attachment to understanding... The, you know, to, to, in other words, breaking it down to an God, intellectual. If God has a plan, and God is everywhere. Why do Why do you need to know anything about anything? If what are, you know, and, and how do you How does one live keeping God present in their consciousness, but yet not being attached? In other words, I'm if God you. didn't want um, want to have feelings, then God wouldn't have created the feeling of anger. So, right. No, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. So here's the, here's the idea. The idea is at the same time that we believe that God enlivens every moment and God is behind every moment, we also believe that we have responsibility in the moment to do our best, to react our best, etc. To to, to, what I'm saying is like this. That if I feel, if I truly feel like God is recreating this moment, the feeling is not, a, well, God can, re- can create this moment or recreate this moment, recreate, create my life in this moment, so let God take care of the rest. No, it's, therefore, I have to make good choices in this moment that God recreated, that God created for me. So there's a balance between the notion of, of Hashem Echad, of God is one, God is, is in this moment, also I'm not cutting out God from this moment, I'm not saying that this moment is only extension of the previous moment, but God is right here in this moment. At the same time, embracing my responsibility to do something positive in this moment. And it's not necessarily a contradiction. Because the one area, and this is we've talked about also many times, the one area in which we do have a role is in the moral choices that we make. That is where God does give us space. The idea is that the, the, the power is to recognize that this is a new moment that God creates for me to then infuse with meaning. That only I can infuse. Because if I say, well, let God take care of it, if God's doing it, let God do everything, that's, a, that's too passive. That's too passive. It's like the person, you know, after 120 years says, God, I prayed every day for, for, to win the lottery. How come, you, how come I didn't win? And the answer is, you didn't buy a ticket. You know, you got to buy... No, it's a silly... The thing that I always seem to come back to is, without, without the guideline of the... In other words, how do you know what to do? You have to have guidelines. So that's what Torah is about. Torah is about a guide for living. That's what Torah means. Torah means instruction. Torah is a guide for living. From a practical sense, from a moral sense, spiritual sense. It's faced with two choices, and usually there are more than two. Yeah. If you're assuming that God is presenting you with these choices so that you make a moral decision, 
and one seems equally as valid as the other, or five of them seem equally as valid, and you can take any fork in the road. Yeah. How, how do you know, you know... It, it's a challenge. It's not easy. But the more you study, the more you, you're immersed in the, in the thinking of Torah, the, the easier it becomes. Yeah. You know, I think the answer is like the person gets high, God plays high and seek. And that's part of what the deal is, is that that's where the self-determination comes in, to go through that struggle. And the reason why we need to understand is because we live in a material world. And so that's what our conditioning is. And the Torah is to let us know that we're more than that, 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 that we're part of something greater than that, and that's that's the challenge to keep searching for that, and why why there's no answers to it. That's why we want answers because that's that is idolatry. But we need we need bases to start from to springboard into because it's too esoteric, it's too out there without some something. But we have to know that there's more than what we know. Because I, I we say that there's this choice to pay this force or that force. Well, that's just based on information that we've accumulated in our lifetime and what's that based on? It's like having a computer if it's got whatever data, it's given. Whatever the data has been fed to it right. is what it makes its decisions from. Right. And what this is there's something that supersedes that and and that's where the faith comes in to know that it's there. When you're talking about like with, with it, like, you know, the world so like that those for our benefit to try to understand it. I mean when it was created, it was like it, it was the, it's just created, but how do, how does it trickle down? And it's also a blueprint for how the whole world works, you know. And, and I think that that's why um, what this is is for us to get more comfortable with the uncertainty of life and not to have pat answers because it, it's like it's like a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a day at a time, a moment at a time. That's part of the idea that it's it's it, it is a new opportunity. It is now within that new opportunity, you gotta you know you, the idea is to do the best that you can in that in that moment, and that's where Torah the, the information that you have. The information that you have. That's all you can do. You do the best you can with the information that you have, right? And you make your decision based on that. And sometimes you find out later it was the wrong decision quote-unquote, right. and then you go from there. And that wrong decision might have been the right decision based on where you need to be right now. Yeah. Uh, but, you don't know. but the idea is to be at least conscious of this concept as opposed to just thinking that life is the way it is and things are stuck the way they are and you know nothing's changing. That's, that's being a slave to time. That's being a servant. You know, that's being enslaved to time and that's not, it's not uh, or to the status quo. Yeah. Just a couple of thoughts. When you know we have more volatility and <clears throat> chaos starts to increase in the world, um, as a whitewater kayaker, I know that, or whatever your sport or whatever it is, um, dancer, you know when you're on your toes, you can spin, and then when you're at the top of the wave, like you know the waves are getting rough, at the top of the wave you actually have less friction. So the less kind of grounded, you know, the more the ground's coming out from under us the more we can spin and shift so we can we can make that determination of where we want to go. It's a great idea. Yeah. The problem is sometimes we feel like when we're in that vulnerable space, the fa- we need the faith to recognize that even when we feel vulnerable, well, there's something with us. And just, we're not so... I know we're not supposed to believe in fortunes, but there, there 
was like these two fortune cookies right here. And I knew one felt like male, one felt like female. And mine was, I opened it up, there's a male one, and it said, a man's conscience is his compass. That was a male one. The female one, okay, here we go. All right, this is for my friend. Um, don't, uh, uh, you know, don't go for safety. That could be the most dangerous thing in the world. So, to me, the, the depressing thing is the philosophers say, oh, God created us and we're the watch, and then he put us on the shelf. It's like, when I was studying that in philosophy, that was like the most depressing thing I ever heard. Yeah. And the uh, Tibetans say it's extremely difficult to be incarnated. Forget plant, forget you know, one of the billions and trillions of, of amoebas, forget animals. Human, you need a great zhut. They didn't say zhut, but that's what they said. And they Merit. said it is so difficult to become a human that you better take advantage of it because you have tremendous merit. Like, you know, you had to do some good things. Yeah, we don't necessarily believe in that, like earning. But the idea that that as the hour we have tremendous potential, we're given a tremendous gift. I mean, that's all of that is, uh, yeah, relatively. We have five senses physically, and like Marnie said, the the um, goal, well, the challenge is we have the same five senses spiritually, but uh, we think that this is what we rely on. You know, we have faith in, like you said, in, when you're spinning, it's hard to have faith in. landing somewhere where you don't know. However, um, the, I mean, the seat seat is is not so that we don't get caught in looks, we don't get trapped, you know, with with looks versus, oh, you think something's attractive, really? You think it feels good to be around the person, really? You think that that's that's attractive? And then you realize there's different, there's another energy in the world that um, is a deeper energy that is uh, coming to trust ourselves. And my question is, the energy that God used, is that physical? What The energy that we're talking about, where God recreates, yeah, to, create, yeah. to create, is, it has, there's a physical representation of that energy, but it's a spiritual energy. We're talking about a, a spiritual, a, a divine force, even beyond spiritual. It's within everything. I have to understand, when we're talking about everything's recreated, we mean literally everything that's recreated, a rock that's still doesn't move. It hasn't moved. A mountain. It's being recreated from nothing, from uh, uh, beyond, before potential to actuality. It's being recreated every moment. Let's read some of this stuff inside. All right, let's read some of it inside. Um, let's read 42. We're going to pick this up in the middle of 42. And we are going to uh, finish off chapter 3, which goes to page 46. All right, Linda, you want to take it away? Indeed, the first you give life to Mechaya. them all, you alternatively be read, may alternatively be read, as you give existence to Mechaya, mm-hmm. them all, at every moment and every instant, as it says, who in his goodness renews each day continuously the work of creation. Again, we read this two weeks ago, but I just want to pick it up from here. The idea he's saying here, the verse says, which means you give, you, Hashem, you, God, give life to all, to everything. So he says, don't read it, you give life to Mechaya, but read it, you give existence to Mehave. By the way, Mehave is related to the word Havaya. Sounds similar? God as giving existence to, not life. There's the difference between life and existence in, in this context, not in the context that we've discussed in previous uh, lectures, etc. Here what we're saying is the difference is, 
One is, he gave life once upon a time. One is constantly enlivening existence. That's, that's in this context, the distinction. Um, and the, the point is that God constantly, at every moment, at every instant, gives life to creation. Continue as explained elsewhere. As explained elsewhere, this renewal of creation is an expression of his essential goodness, for it is the nature of the benevolent to do good. He renews and re-enlivens all things each day continuously, and not just each day, but each moment. The daily renewal being slightly more recognizable. So again, I said this two weeks ago, every morning it's easy to say, oh, it's a new start, it's a new day, it's a blessing from God. Thank God, God has given me a soul, God has given me life, you are faithful God and you're giving me life today again, fantastic. It's easy to, to feel in the morning of each day that this day is new. And it's a new start. By the way, the Rebbe once asked the question, why is it that we sleep? Why is it that the human being needs sleep? You say, because you get tired. But why does the human being get tired? Plants don't get tired, at least as far as I know. Maybe plants do get tired. But plants don't get tired. They seem to just kind of do their thing, you know, growing, whatever. So why, why do human beings get tired? Because that's the way we are. But if you, if you were designing a human being, why not just design them to work? Oh, that's the answer. Right, the answer is, because if you had a bad day, you can put it to rest, and you can feel like you have a new start. Here's the point. The point is, it's for us, it's a gift for us, to be able to ourselves hit the reset button and start again. New day. The reality is, the truth is, what we're saying here is, you don't need sleep to achieve that. Every moment the reset button is being hit. That's the point here. Every day, everyone can feel that. Most of us, most human beings in the world can feel like a new day is a new start. At some point, if they're not conscious of it, so then they're not conscious of it. But the concept can be well understood that a new day is a new start, a new opportunity, etc. But that every moment is a new start, that you need this for. That you need, uh, you need some deeper teachings. To feel like every moment, the second ago, this second is a brand new moment that God is willing into existence that didn't exist before because before it wasn't God's will that this moment existed, it was the previous moment. But this moment is being willed into existence and, and in other words, there's no space outside of God's will, not even this space as an old space from the previous even this moment, from an old moment, this moment is also a new moment that God wants. That's a profound idea. That, you still believe that? Huh? You still believe that? I believe it again now. <laughs> you remember that coffee? Taste it again for the very first time? Taster's choice? No? Yeah. Or somebody fo- taste it again for the very first time? Like that? that was a slogan? That's the idea. It's, it's, it's again, but it's the very first time. Alright. Forty, the Kabbalah of slogans of Madison Avenue. All right, um, continue. Forty-four at the top, Linda. After stating, Havaya is Elokim. The verse intensifies the point by explaining there is nothing else besides His essence. That is, no forces operate in partnership with God, as explained elsewhere. So the first, the verse says, this is the verse in Deuteronomy. First, the verse says, you should know You should know today. No, don't have faith. No, today. And you should put it to your heart. This is at the end of Elenu. I forget the tune already. But you should know, because it's not like that. If you, you have to know and place it to your heart, know it and feel it, 
That what? That Hashem is Elohim. Havai is Elohim. In other words, that the Elohim is the facade. Elohim is the disconnect, the perceived disconnect. Doesn't exist. It's not true. It's Havaya. Hashem is everywhere. Hashem is enlivening everything. There's no space outside of God. There's no time outside of God. It's said as we've established. After that, it says something else. And you should also know and place to your heart that ain't oi. There's nothing else. What that means, he says, is that's another point. His point is that there's no partnership. No, no other forces are operating in partnership with God, as explained elsewhere. There's two ideas. One is that God doesn't exist in this moment. One is idolatry. That God does not exist in this space or in this moment. That God doesn't exist here. Then there's another point, a more subtle point. God exists here, but I also exist. Or God exists and something else exists, and in tandem, they're working together. That's called partnership. So that's why the verse says you should know, ain't there's nothing else, no partnerships. What does it mean? What about the human being being a partner with God in creation? Is that what you're going to ask? Did you say Shitov was forbidden? Shitov is forbidden, yes. Yes, it says this. Good. That's what it's called. Shitov, yeah, that's partnership. Very good. So we're saying here to know that there's no Shitov, there's no partnership. This is where it gets a little sticky. With the human being, there's partnership. With the constellations, there's no partnership. That, that's his point here. If you look in the footnote, uh, one of the footnotes, 82, no, 81, no, 82. What's partnership? I'm going to read footnote 82. Look at footnote 82. You see in the bottom of 44, the right-hand side of the footnote, where it says in a tra- second paragraph, in a transcriber's note of the discourse, the concept of partnership is, as our sages said in tractate Nida 31a, there are three partners in creating a human being, father, mother, and God. By the way, the end, the conclusion of that is, the father provides the white, the mother, which the white is, the nails... The white of the eye. It talks about what the father con- contributes to the, to the physical human being. The mother provides the red, the blood, the, some of the other stuff. And God provides the soul. This is what the Talmud says. The father provides this, the mother provides that, but the physical stuff. And God provides the soul, the spirit. So, although the father and mother is back inside, although the father and mother contribution, father and mother's contributions are incomparable to that of God, which gives life itself, they are nevertheless partners who they chose to marry and procreate when they have the ability to choose the opposite. By contrast, the heavenly hosts do not possess the ability to choose freely and are merely like as an axe in the hands of the wood chopper. The axe does not choose when to chop or when not to chop the wood, and therefore cannot be considered a partner. Such as the status of the heavenly hosts. This is a very important footnote. The human being can be a partner. We always talk about we're partners in creation with God. God creates an unfinished world and He entrusts us to finish the job. There is a concept of shit of a partnership that we have with God. We choose, right? The, the idea of having children, he says, is a choice. Father and mother, husband and wife, right? Male and female, they choose. And a child is born. Although their, cho- their, their contribution, you know, without God's contribution... That won't lead to life because God provides a soul, which is the life, the biggest part of it, biggest component of life is the soul. Nonetheless, they they do play a role, and their role is a choice. They didn't have to; they could have chose the opposite. So there, there, when it comes to the human being and choice, there, there is the power of choice. There is partnership with God. 
However, but getting back to our point here, which is more about the idolatry of Egypt and the constellations and the other forces, the point is that the constellations, on the other hand, don't have this choice. The constellations are like the, 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 the axe. The axe doesn't choose whether we're going to knock down a tree today and say, Hey, lumber, lumberjacks, cut down trees? Yeah, yeah. Hey, lumberjack, let's go cut down a tree. The axe is not, doesn't, have, doesn't play an active role in that choice. The father, mother, the, hu- the husband, and wife, the man, man and woman play, a, play an active role, choice, and an active role in, not only an active role, because the axe also plays an active role, but they choose to play a role in the creation of, a, of another human being, of a child, the birth of a child. Therefore, there is a partnership there. When it comes to the constellations, on the other hand, there's no partnership. Why? Because the axe is not a partner with it. The axe is a tool, it's not a partner. Partner implies consciousness. The way we're phrasing it. This may be off topic, but I've been thinking about it for a couple of days. So, Mashiach? Yes. The way, the, the way we conceive of Mashiach? Yes. Is that going to be a person? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's not directly the topic. But, <laughs> but, but, right, it is a season. The idea is that, yeah, Mashiach, Maimonides, as Ram says, there will be a person who is noted to be that, to, who will be in that position as the leader, as the, as the Messiah. So that's a partnership. We're all partners with God. You don't have to go to, to Mashiach. To We're, all of us are in partnership with God. Because we cut. This is what I've been saying all along is that within this space, within God's space of controlling everything, etc., there are the moral choices that we make. And in this context, the, the choice to, to procreate would be considered also a choice that we make, an active choice that we make. So in these areas of choice, we do play a role. So we, we do play a role of partner. We don't play We don't play role of soul decisor or decider because we can't just create life on our own it takes the God's blessing and God's component to help as well but we do play a role whereas when it comes to the constellations anything outside of God God only gives his power partnership to us to anything else he says you're just a tool alright so that's the point that's what the verse says number one Hashem is Elohim all of the concealment all of the autonomy in the world yeah it's running by itself the constellations are doing their thing the sun and the moon and the stars the, the, the oceans they're all flowing it's moving it's doing its own thing all of that is not real it's all Hashem Ain't there's not even a partnership there Anything that they do is only like the axe in the hand of the woodchopper. It's like a tool. It's not a conscious, uh, 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 choice-filled partnership. It's, it's, it's like a tool. And, okay, so continue the next part in order. <coughs> Second paragraph from 44 in the top. In order to negate that notion, the verse reiterates that there is nothing else. The, to, re, to negate the notion of partnership, you say, okay, look, look, look okay, Hashem is here, but, uh, but the, the stars are also there. No, 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 there's nothing else. Not even stars. What do you mean the stars? It's like the axe. There's no axe, it's only the woodchopper. Yeah, he needs the axe also to cut down the tree. But it doesn't, it doesn't play an active role, it's a passive role. Alright, continue. Indeed, all the signs and wonders were brought to Pharaoh in Egypt for the same purpose, to prove that there is none like me in the entire world. 
and biological extension, there is happening. His point here is like the, the entire Exodus experience. The point of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt, the point of Passover, which we relive every day, the point of saying the Shema, which talks about the Exodus from Egypt every single day, three times a day, and, and, and twice a day in the davening, in the prayers. The reason why Exodus and Egypt and plagues and Pharaoh is such a big point of Judaism and why it was done in the first place is to impress upon us this notion that there's nothing else besides for God. God is showing, is demonstrating nothing can stand in my way. Not Egypt, not Pharaoh, not the gods of Egypt, so to uh, to speak. Nothing else has power. Only God. God is the only force in existence. Continue. These signs and wonders showed them that the ruling constellation of Egypt had no power to or stand in opposition to God and was by its very essence nothing additional to God's existence but rather like the plowshare used to plow the axe used to chop another similar analogy alright so here's the point the point is what is God demonstrating with the plagues with the exodus God is demonstrating God is basically saying your constellation has power your gods in Egypt have power stop me stop me if you can and he's also saying No, he's saying Havai is Elohim. Elohim is Havai, Havai is Elohim. It's the same thing. That which appears to be a concealment, so it can, it can it's all God. The, 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 the stars and the constellation, it's, nothing, it's not, nothing outside of God. It's all one. Not that God is a star. We have, have to be careful. Not that God is a star. But the star is nothing other than, than the power of God to choose to... Right? The star doesn't have its own power. The star is only a force that God puts in place to, to not be its own independent force, but a force that God is using. It's like it's the plowshare used to plow, the axe used to chop, similar analogies. That's the point. The point is that no Egyptian god, no Egyptian constellation or star no, could stand in the way. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. We're going to get to that in a second. We're going to actually get into that in four. But I'll tell you right now. I have the, here, it's um, it's uh, t- it's um, it was the tele. Hold on. It was Mazel tele. It was the it was Aries, which is the month of Nisan, which is when the Exodus happened. The idea is when the when their constellation was at its peak. In the month of Nisan, which is the month of usually April, does that make sense that it's April? Month of April. So God says, Your constellation is at its peak. The 15th day of the month, when the moon is at its peak, I don't know, but it's like the, the, the middle of the month. So the, the power of the Egyptian God is at its peak. God says, Stop me if you can. And the point is to realize that no constellation can stop God because the constellations are a tool that God uses. So how could the tool stop the, the wielder of the tool? Right? That's the point. How can the tool oppose... It can't unless it has its own power and then it's not a tool anymore. Then it's, it's an independent force. It's the war between the, uh, the, the woodchopper and the axe. Which would make a very bizarre scene. Alright. Does it make sense? Did I answer your question? Yep, you did. Okay. You could. You, I'm, I'm not going to stop you. Now, I, you might want to catch it on the year-end clearance event that, or year-end event that they may or may not be having. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. By the way, this is going to relate to the golden calf because the next month after Aries is Taurus, which is the bull or the cow, 
the calf. We're gonna. This is all. It's all related. We're gonna get there in a second. I right, continue. Oh, are they? Oh, yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. Which one is Aries? Is it the uh, what sign is that? The ram. It's the ram. It's the ram, or it, the way it's in Hebrew, it's called the tele, which is more of the of the. It's, I guess it's just maybe they're related somehow. Ram, lamb, rhymes, whatever. But that's why the Paschal sacrifice, the Paschal lamb was brought as a as a, a def, in defiance of the Egyptian god. The Egyptian god is at its uh, the constellation is at its peak. The Jews took the paschal lamb from the 10th of Nisan until the Exodus from the 10th to the 14th for 4 days. They tied it to their bedposts and they defied the Egyptians who deified this animal. And they said, so what are you doing with our with our god, with our deity?" He said, "We're we're going to shecht it in 4 days. We're going to eat it." Barbecue. <laughs> Barbecue our place. You're all invited. Is that why they used lamb's blood? Exactly. Well, they, that's what they did. They, they slaughtered the lamb. They roasted it on a spit. The Paschal, they ate, they ate the barbecue. They took the blood and they put it on the doorpost. Of the same, the same animal. They took the blood, put it on the doorpost, and then God skipped over the thing. The point is that no imagery, no lamb, no nothing. It's almost like, you don't want to think about it another way. I, it's, you can't really say this. You can't really say this, but you... I don't know if you can. You know, God shows us even in modern times how the, 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 the things that we deify don't really have power. You know, markets crash, housing... Things come and go, and the things that we put so much stock and faith in come crumbling down. I, you know, if somebody experiences loss and it's devastating, I'm not, the point is not to say, oh, look, we're going to... But the idea is that there is... Nothing has independent power other than God. And when God wants something to... Does that make any sense? Yeah, but good things seem to be... seem to come tumbling down, but horrible things seem to prevail forever. Famine, devastation, sickness... Unfortunately, there's too much of that. Unfortunately, there's too much of that. And I'm not saying that... I'm not justifying that by saying, well, God is trying to demonstrate. I'm not saying that. That's, like, that's, that's not something I would say. The, the point, though, is that in Egypt, God does bring down Egypt in its full strength, in its glory, uh, in the month of Nisan, when, the, when their sign, their sign is at its most powerful, their God, their constellation, their star is at its most powerful. And the message is that your star, your star doesn't have its own power. The whole concept of idolatry is not true. That was the point. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. Um, assuming that... that you know, that Hashem is, since there's nothing greater than Hashem, so Hashem is interested in all human beings coming to a state of revelation, not only Jews, all human beings, right? So then why, if that's the case, are Jews that are supposed to be the guiding light such an incredible minority? Because it would seem like if revelation for the entire planet was desirable that we have a little more... There'll be more. <laughs> now, not to, say, not to say that Jews can't be tremendously influential, but think about where we've channeled our influence. In Hollywood, Wall Street. Think about the influence, the science, medicine. I'm not, I'm not discounting all of those fields. Right? The point is, though, that a minority can have a big effect. And if it was so easy, if like there was a majority of you, then it would be too easy also. So like the idea is there's... We're not allopathic either. 
said, we, we, we're also symbolic, like Ms. Ryan, we all have our personal routine, our personal bondage, and that's being on this planet. And so, and, and that starts with a planet, and then it, it gets yeah, into other yeah, stuff that right. we get into. Yeah. So, and the thing is that, and, and that, that's, that's our struggle for freedom, you know, and we go to our own um, midbar, you know, our own desert, you know, of like being, and, and so that path that we do, that, I don't think it's just like you show the light on something and tell people what they have to do, but you show them by your own path. So, uh, the Jew practicing the principles of Judaism. And, and these things, and living life on those terms, then it doesn't matter what you call it. Like you said, I mean, no, but I mean, Doris's question is though, he had more in the army, it would help. Right, well, you, got, you got more numbers. It's it's going to make a bigger impact. But there are those that say, by the way, there, it says in the books that you know we look at the destruction of the temple and the the exile and the the fact that Jews are dispersed across the world. We look at that as a bad thing, you know, decentralization. It says it's a good thing because how else are you going to influence the world if you're concentrated in one place and in the Middle East somewhere? So that's what we have. We have the idea, and that's what the Rebbe was doing also with Shluchim. You get everyone out. That's like for you know. No, I'm not saying army. In a, wait, I said the word army. Yeah. yeah, I didn't mean a bad army. I meant the army. army of light. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the Rebbe instituted something called Sivas Hashem, the army of God. He said, so much money and effort is being put into armies that kill, let's create an army of goodness. And he said, army, you have mitzvahs, you have, you have Torah, you have... So the kids, there's the kids club, Chabad Worldwide Kids Club is called Sivas Hashem, the army of Hashem. And it's, a, it's an army of goodness and kindness. It's hitting the streets. The rabbi said, what's the, what's the thing called when it goes out to Manhattan or goes out to other places with mitzvah tank? The rabbi said, call it a tank. It's a, call it a tank. It's an RV. But in Israel, they actually sometimes have real tanks. Call it a tank and your soldiers and go out with the same focus, with the same, but to do goodness and, and, and peace. Like, it's really like the Peace Corps. Actually, the rabbi, I think, said that just like the Peace Corps exists, we have to have a, a, a mitzvah Peace Corps. That was, I, th- I believe, there's the, that. That's how it kind of. That's why Chabad is all over the world. That's and the, well, that's why Jews are all over the world. And Chab- the Chabad idea is to embrace that reality and say, "Look, Jews are all over the world. There's a reason." Now, could we use? Could we do with more numbers? Yeah, I, I think so. So that's you know that's our job to repopulate the planet. <laughs> but I, but I think. <laughs> no, but I think. But the point. Well, he's, yeah, he's definitely had. But the point is that we certainly could do with more, but we can't say, look, we don't have enough, so we can't do. We got it. Everyone has to be a shining light to, to our own. The, the message of Hanukkah is, if there's one message of Hanukkah, it's it's this message. It's that, what do you do with darkness? You don't chase away darkness with a stick. You don't try to smack darkness. All you have to do is light one candle, and and a lot of darkness goes away with one. You be the shining light in your, in your life. And it will, it will radiate. And it will touch somebody else. And if they're a, shine, a, a point of light, it will radiate. And a little by little, the world is a brighter place. And that's what Mashiach is. Hopefully it doesn't have to wait until everyone gets... It's, you know, hopefully at a certain point we cross the threshold and it's there. Alright, let's finish off chapter 3. Let's do the last uh, paragraph. 44 at the bottom. When the Egyptians... When the Egyptians beheld and recognized the greatness of God's miracles and the punishment to which they and their gods were sent Because the gods were also, there was something also that the, the gods also were broken, etc. 86, there's, there's footnotes there. Continue. They believed in the one singular God, the 
ruler died, albeit for the moment, for they saw that the ruling constellation of Egypt was powerless to oppose God and save them from his hand. It is the finger of God who is ruler and controller of all, even on this earth, and not, as they had erroneously believed, that he had abandoned it, leaving control for other forces. So that's, that is the actual, the absolute point of the Exodus, and the point of that we're trying to bring out here is to remember this point, which is that before the Egyptians believed that there were other powers, other forces, their gods, their deities, their lambs, and their cats, and their, and their constellations, and their stars, and their Nile River, and their pharaohs, that were the controlling cats, no? I don't know. That were controlling forces. Huh? Yeah, that were the controlling forces. And the point of the Exodus is, and the point of all the plagues is, to demonstrate that nothing has the power, it's only Hashem, and Hashem sometimes works through these other things, or uses these things as a tool, but they don't have their own independent power. When God chooses, God can uh, God can do what He wants without their input and or opposition. Now, chapter four. I'm gonna I'm gonna foreshadow chapter four. We're not meeting next week on New Year's Day. But we're gonna take a week off. We'll, we'll meet in two weeks. In two weeks' time, we're starting from page forty-six, chapter four. And in this, so I have the astrological chart. We're gonna get into this chart. Right, some of you have uh, have heard the presentation that I gave on uh, the Kabbalah of astrology. Um, we're not going to do the whole presentation, but we're going to talk a little bit about it. We're going to talk about the the neighboring signs in the, of the month of Nisan and Er, of Aries and Taurus, the Lamb and the Bull, or in our context, uh, the, or the Ram and the Bull, the Lamb, Ram and the Bull, and tie it into the Golden Calf and the mixed multitude, the Air of Rav, what the mistake of the Golden Calf was, and what that point was, and it's it's a profound idea. It also brings out the frailty of memory. The idea how, as, he, as if you notice that word that was set off, the phrase, the Egyptians believed for a moment, they re- recognized for a moment that nothing else has power. In our lives, we also experience those moments where we realize that, oh, what I thought had power does not have power. Typically, those moments pass. <coughs> we fall back into the same traps as we do of giving power to all those other things that we give power to. And we're going to see what the mistake of the golden calf was. We're also going to—it's also going to start the process of, of easing out of. We, we, we I, I don't want to use higher or lower in a negative sense, but we've fallen into, in a good way, this, ma- this the major part of the discourse, which is the discussion of what faith is, what idolatry is, what Egypt is, what the plagues are, what the Exodus is. That's the major point of it. And then, and then the idea of what is the faith that gets us out of this place of Egypt. Then we're going to slowly, we're, we're on the upswing, next, starting from chapter 4, we're on the upswing to tie it back into the feminine energy and understand why the feminine energy resisted the, um, the, the call of the, gold, the allure of the golden calf and why they remain true to the, the faith baseline, which is there's nothing else other than God, which is uh, what we've been talking about. All right, that's it for today. Thank you all for coming out and uh, happy Hanukkah.